too. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt a compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, is alive. He was lost and is found. Father, thank you for your word this morning to us. Open our eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that's receptive to your truth, to the gospel. And may we be encouraged this morning for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, if you've ever been away from home for any extended period of time, you know how when you're on your way home, your thoughts are of just the warm welcome you're going to receive from your family and friends when you get back. Well, back in February of 2006, there were five of us who took the first of what's been many trips to the Children's Fellowship of India campus in Central Central India, Ted Long, uh, you were on that trip uh, with us, 
And uh, coming back from the Philly airport, man, we could not wait to see our family. So we pull into the church parking lot, and lo and behold, there is not a vehicle to be seen. So we just figured, oh, they're, they're pulling something. They parked elsewhere, and they're all going to be in. So we walk into Grace Cafe, and guess what? There ain't nobody there. The driver who picked us up from the airport forgot that he was to drop us off at one of the uh, members on the team, their house, because the wives had planned a warm welcome for us there in Strasburg. Oh, well. So uh, the welcome we had longed for just didn't happen. And Ted and I were talking about that before the service. We remember that well. Well, at the heart of the parable we're looking at today, a welcome is right there at the heart of it. A welcome that was unexpected by one son and definitely unwanted by the other. Now, to understand the passage, the parable, the story Jesus is telling, we have to remind, go back to those first three verses in the chapter, the, the context for him telling not just this parable, but the other two that preceded it. And what we see here, are, we see two different groups. We see the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, they were the outcasts of society. Whereas the Pharisees and scribes were the religious insiders. And what's interesting, look at those verses. Which of those two groups are the groups, the people that are drawing near to Jesus? It's the outcasts. And what are the religious insiders, the Pharisees and scribes doing? They're grumbling that Jesus is welcoming these people into his presence. <laughs> wow. So that's where we're going today. And the outcasts of society are represented by the younger son, the younger brother in the story. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious insiders, are represented by the older. And of course, the central feature, the central character in this story is none other but the Father, who represents our Father in heaven. Now this parable is best known as the parable of the what? Yeah, prodigal son. But... I don't know. I don't really like that because when you read the opening verses, there was a man who had two sons. So we're going to see that this parable is about as much the older son as the younger son, and it's about as much of the, as of the father as it is the two sons. Now, a quick note on the word prodigal. Many people think this word means wayward. In fact, it has taken on that meaning as a result of this parable because the prodigal son is the wayward son. But that's not the original meaning of the word prodigal. The original meaning is spending money and or resources, property, whatever, freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. And we just read through the parable, and you go, oh, yeah, that's what the younger son did, didn't he? He squandered his inheritance, yes, recklessly. But there's another character we could look at and say, oh, yes, that applies to him too, and that's the father. And you'll see why as we work our way through this parable. Now, 
To fully understand this parable, we must not read the story through our 21st century American cultural lens. Jesus and his listeners lived in a very different culture. Let me explain some of the differences. Our culture is very individualistic. So it's all about me. It's all about my rights. But the culture of Jesus' day was a collective culture. In other words, a group-oriented culture. It's all about the group that I am part of. Another difference. Our culture is very youth-centric. It's a culture that celebrates youth. Jesus' culture was very different. It was a culture where the aged and the older were honored and revered. And it was a very much a patriarchal society. The father of the family was to be honored above all. And then lastly, you will see that, or you need to understand, Jesus' culture was an honor-shame culture. The honor of the group was of the highest value. So the high, my family, my tribe, my community, honor was all important. Shame was to be avoided at all costs because what did shame do? It kept us, it kept people from being honored the way they should be honored. So we need to keep that in mind as we work our way through this. So we begin with the first character, the younger, what I call self-absorbed son. And what we see first is we see his shameful request. In verse 12, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. What's he doing? He's asking for his inheritance ahead of time. It's what was due him, and it would have been a third of this man's estate, the older brother most likely getting two-thirds. And this would have shocked his listeners that this young man had the audacity to go before his father and dishonor his father in such a way and bring him shame. Because in essence, he was saying, Father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Tim Keller wrote an excellent book I'd highly recommend it on this parable. It's called The Prodigal God. But listen to his insights here. He says, he writes, the younger son was saying essentially that he wants his father's things, but not his father. His relationship to the father has been a means to the end of enjoying his wealth, and now he was wary of that relationship. He wants out now. Give me what is mine, he says. Wow. So, how's the father going to respond to that? to the, the disgrace that's being heaped upon him by his younger son. <laughs> Here's the father's shocking response because his listeners would have been shocked. What's the father do? Verse 12, he divided his property between them. He gave in. He caved to the request from his younger son. The word translated property here is the Greek word bios, B-I-O-S. It's the, it's the Greek word we get our English word biology from. Bios means life. And so as we read this in the cultural, through the cultural lens of Jesus' day, keep in mind it was an agrarian culture. 
I mean, agriculture was at the center of their lives. We live in an urban suburban culture, but not then. And so a wealthy man's wealth was not demonstrated by the size of his bank account or his holdings in the stock market, but rather how much land he owned. So for this father to fulfill his younger son's request, he would have had to sell off quite a bit of his land, and that would have greatly reduced his standing of honor in his society. It cost him dearly. Again, Tim Keller weighs in here. This youngest brother then is asking his father to tear his life apart. And the father does so for the love of his son. Most of Jesus' listeners would have never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond like this. The father patiently endures a tremendous loss of honor as well as the pain of rejected love. Ordinarily, when our love is rejected, we get angry, retaliate, and we do what we can do to diminish our affection for the rejecting person so we won't hurt someone. But this father maintains his affection for his son and bears the agony. Wow. And yet the beat goes on. Yeah, next we see the younger son's scandalous rebellion. Not many days later, verse 13, he gathers all he took, journeys into a far-off country. He, he doesn't waste any time. He's on the road, and he gets as far away from his father as he can. And what's he do there? He squanders his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Reckless living. Where did it end up? He had nothing. Not even a penny to his name. In the midst of a famine, he's forced to hire himself to feed pigs of all animals. For a Jew, unclean. Ritually unclean animal longing to eat what he was feeding them, dressed in dirty rags that I'm sure as he cared for and fed the pigs over time, became incre he increasingly smelled like the pigs he was feeding. Al Mohler also wrote an excellent book on the parables, Tell Me the Stories of Jesus. This is what it says this younger son is now. The picture of utter degradation and violation of the law was now complete. There was almost nothing Jesus could add to this young man's crime and its consequences. Once a treasured son living safely in his father's house, his treasonous rebellion resulted in his, in his living fatherless, homeless, nationless, and feeding swine. Could it get any worse? But then the story begins to take a turn as we see the younger son's soulful repentance. He came to himself. He remembers that his hired workers in his father's house had plenty to eat. So what's he say in verse 18? I will arise, go to my father, I'll say to him, 
Father, I've sinned against heaven, that means against God, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In effect, he wanted to return. He wanted his father to accept him, not back as a son, but as a hired hand, so that maybe he could start working and paying off the debt that he owed his father. So he climbs out of the pig pen, heads home to face the music, because he had not only disgraced his father, he disgraced his older brother, his entire family, extended family, his tribe, his community. Isn't it interesting, friends? In the younger, self-absorbed sons, we see a beautiful picture of what conversion is all about. James Montgomery Boyce, long-term pastor in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian Church, he wrote a book on the parables of Jesus, and he points out the three steps to conversion, genuine conversion here. First of all, there's an awake, awakening, an awareness to one's true condition, and that happened. Here's the younger son. He leaves home. He's convinced of one thing, that that inheritance he had in hand and how he was going to spend it on his own pleasures, he was going to find fulfillment and happiness. But he lost everything. He was friendless, homeless. Only then did he come to his senses and realize just how good he had it back home. That's a picture of us. Think about it. We're spiritually bankrupt, all of us, before God. We're without God. We're without hope, the scripture says. And we're looking for our fulfillment and purpose and happiness elsewhere. But we get nowhere. So there's first an awakening to one's true condition. Second, there's an honest confession of true sin. The son, having come to his senses, he acknowledges. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against God, and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He takes responsibility. He doesn't seek to justify, rationalize his sin. He says, this is what I've done. And friends, we must also admit to our sin against God, not seek to excuse it in any way, but acknowledge that when the Bible says all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. That means me. That means you. It means us all. And then there's one final step. There's a turning to the Father. There's a turning to God. We see that in the rebellious son, this self-absorbed son. He knew that it was only going back to the Father that he would find what he was looking for. And so we must do the same. Turning to God. Realizing the Father, only the Father, through the work of, the, of his Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, can forgive us, cleanse us, and welcome us to himself. So, the Son, he's made that decision, he's off and running, and he's approaching the Father's house. And yet, another turn. I, I just love the story. They're just... And I'm sure his listeners were like, what's next? What's next? And now he's going to shift his focus from the first character to the second character, 
the watching father. And what we see first is the father's surprising reception of his son. Verse 20. And the father arose, or the son arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Note, the father was longing for his son's return, and therefore he was looking, and he spotted him while he was a long way off. And then the father does the unthinkable in that culture. He runs. He runs to embrace the son who had so disgraced him and fell upon him and kissed him. Well, the younger son's flabbergasted at this time, but he had rehearsed this speech, so he was going to give it to his father. And he starts in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But is the father listening? The father calls to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate, for my son was dead, he's alive again, he was lost, he's found. And they began to separate, uh, celebrate. The best robe. Who would have owned the best robe in the house? The father, the owner of the great estate. This was his way of saying, son, you don't have to earn your way back into the family. I am going to cover your nakedness. I am going to cover your filth. I am going to cover your shame with my own robe. That's a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us, isn't it? And then the ring, most likely a ring that was used to seal legal documents. And by doing that, he was saying to the son, you are now reinstated as my legal heir. As for killing the fatted calf, oh, that was rarely done. The fatted calf was, was set aside for just the right, most wonderful of occasions. And the father knew this was one of those. His son, once dead, was alive, once lost, was found. So, this leads us, this surprising reception and stunning restoration of the father of his son leads to a beautiful gospel reality. But before that, this quote, again from Keller, in which he talks about what the father did here, running. He says, as a general rule, distinguished Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run. Children might want, run, women might run, young men might run, but not the paterfamilias the dignified pillar of the community, the owner of the great estate, he would not pick up his robe and bare his legs like some boy, but this father does. He runs to his son and showing his emotions openly, falls upon him and kisses him. You see, in all of this, we see a beautiful gospel, a powerful gospel reality, and it's this. We can never be sinful enough to hinder God's gracious welcome. Never. You know, the younger son, as he was starving, he knew there was a plentiful amount of food waiting for him back at the father's house. He didn't have to starve. But what he didn't know 
was there, there was also a bountiful supply of grace waiting for him. And so, as the lyrics of the song we sing says so well, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Wow. We can never be sinful enough to hinder God's gracious welcome. Well, we looked at one son, the younger self-absorbed son, who ended up repenting, and the waiting father who restored his son. Now we shift to the older self-righteous son. And we begin with looking at the older son's sour resentment. Verse 25, his older son was in the field. He came and drew near the house. So what's he hear? He hears the music and the dancing. So he calls one of the servants and asks what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother's come, your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And how did the younger son or older son respond to that? He was angry and refused to go in. What was going on in his heart? What was he thinking? What was he feeling? Edmund Clooney said it so well. The older brother despises the father's joy, is made furious by his grace, and resents his love for the prodigal. Why was he so bent out of shape? Well, for one, because he was dishonored by his younger brother. But number two, think about this. Here's the sole heir, and all of a sudden, he's no longer the sole heir. Now the younger son is reinstated, so that means his already diminished inheritance because of the way the son, the younger brother, squandered so much of the wealth of dad. Now he's going to have to share what he did have with his little brother. Jesus brings the focus back on the father now. The father's startling request. I mean, he is just blowing the minds of these people listening to him. He came out, verse 28, and entreated him, the older brother, his older son, entreated him, why? Well, come on, join the celebration. I mean, I can picture the scene. The older brother just stomping around, just muttering under his breath. What's, this, what's he think he's doing? Well, my little brother coming back like this, and now I'm going to lose all this inheritance and all this. And he's just scowling and... And out comes the father, puts his arm around his son and begs him to come in. He says, come in. I'm welcoming you to this feast. Come in. Your brother's back. He's home. He's not lost anymore. Come in. How's the son respond to that? tender request by the father that startles the listeners? Well, with a spiteful response. The son pushes his father away. And he tells him he's not about to come. Look at verse 29 and 30. He says, look. Now right there, we need to pause. Because the proper cultural response of a son to a father at that point would have been to say, father, but he can't even bring himself to say that. He just says, look. It's like, hey, look, you. Hmm, very disrespectful. These many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't say my brother. He says this son of yours. You know, I have a little brother, six years younger than me. And he was a pain at times growing up. My twin brother often, well, in part he was a pain. I confess, I confess, we did our part in teasing him and all that kind of stuff big brothers do, right? But, you know, I never went to my mom or dad when I complained about it and goes, you know, this son of yours. I'd just call him by his name or I would say, hey, little bro here is just, anyway. But he can't even bring himself to call the prodigal his brother. In a culture where honoring and rejecting one's elder, respecting one's elder, vastly important, the behavior of the older son toward his father was downright outrageous. So how does the father respond to be so, being so, again, spitefully shamed by his oldest son? You know, a man in his day would have thought nothing of just looking at the son and saying, you know what? You're dead to me. You're no longer my son. But again, look at the tender response. The father's soft-hearted reply. Son, he says, verse 31, you're always with me. All that I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Tim Keller imagines what the father could have said and said justly at this point. He could have said, my son, despite how you've insulted me publicly, I still want you in the feast. I'm not going to disown your brother, and I don't want to disown you either. I challenge you to swallow your pride and come into the feast. The choice is yours. Will you or will you not? It is, Keller says, it is an unexpectedly gracious, dramatic appeal. Now, I am sure at this point, the listeners of this story, they're like on the edge of their seats if they were sitting or they were crowding into Jesus because what's on their mind is what's the older brother going to do? Is he going to accept the father's welcome or not? Hmm. So we look at verse 33. Oh, there is no verse 33. Jesus never gives the answer, does he? Well, I think that was because he's an extending an invitation to the Pharisees and scribes that are listening. He's saying to them, swallow your pride, your self-righteousness, and come to me. At this point, we see yet another beautiful and powerful gospel reality, and it's this. We can never be spiritual or righteous enough to erase our need for God. Never. Some people think they're going to earn God's favor. Because look, that's what the older brother thought. He thought he had done enough to earn the favor of his father. And so too the Pharisees and scribes who were listening to Jesus. They thought they were keeping the law just dandy. And so they were okay. 
But what Jesus is making clear in this story is whether we're living in outright rebellion against God or we're hiding our rebellion behind our cloak of self-righteousness, God in his grace and in his mercy invites all sinners to come home. Come home to him. Come home to the Father's house. For we can never be sinful enough to hinder God's welcome. Nor can we ever be spiritual enough to erase our need for God's welcome. So how about you? Have you accepted God's welcome to come to him? And you know, friends, listen, once we do that, man, so much changes. And we have a gospel promise, a precious promise of the gospel that becomes ours that we can cling to. Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, who you were once, you who were once far off, and both the younger son and the older son were far off from the father in this story, but now brought near by the blood of Christ. Back in February of 2006, we missed our welcome home, didn't we, Ted? Well, I pray that none of you will miss the Father's welcome home that he will give to all who enter his, his house in heaven. Father.